Well, good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? Doing well, I hope. I got one woohoo. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm a woohoo also. Um, but it is great to be with all you all this morning. It's always a joy to be able to share in God's Word together. And uh, after the teaching this morning and the message, uh, we're also going to share in the Lord's Supper together. So I'm uh, immensely pleased to be able to do that this morning uh, with you all. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to James chapter 3. Uh, we're going to close out this chapter, and, and James is picking up in this passage of Scripture um, kind of where he or where we left off last week. Last week, we talked about uh, taming the tongue. Uh, James started out by saying, hey, if any of you desire to be teachers, you should be careful with that desire because we're going to be judged more strictly. And a lot of that more strict judgment against the teacher comes because of the power that lies within the tongue. The tongue is the tool of the teacher, but for all of us as well, uh, we have great power in our tongue and it can be used for things that glorify God and also things that do not. Um, and then he picks up from that from his first how we speak now to how we act. And he begins to address this idea of wisdom and the, the issue at hand is one of origination. Like where a thing originates determines the, the power or authority that that thing may have. And in this sense, he's going to contrast a true heavenly wisdom and an earthly wisdom. And the difference between those two things and what they lead to when we act upon Either, either or, and the difference that should make within our lives. Uh, so beginning in, in verse 13, James again, he begins with this question, rhetorical or in nature, but it's also a challenge in a way, but he says, who is wise and understanding among you? He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he asks this question, in a way it's, it's, it's a challenge, before it's as if, he said, hey, you say you have faith. He says, show me. You know, in chapter 2, you have faith. It should be met with works. Here he says, hey, if you say that you're wise and understanding, show me. Show me that wisdom, and you will see that wisdom by good conduct through our works. The things that we do reveal the wisdom that we have. So it's show me, not by cooking up some situation in which you acted wisely, but by your good conduct. So if someone were to ask me or ask you, hey, show me how wise you are, our thought is going to be to, all right, where's the situation where I can act wisely? But that's not the idea that James is getting at. We can be wise in certain circumstances and situations and unwise in others. But he says it's by your good conduct that we show, it, that we show one another. The word conduct there in the, group, in the Greek is anastrophe, and it means literally conversation. Show me your wisdom by simply your conversation, but the idea is a manner of life in which we live, that we lead, that we continue on living. So we should let our behavior throughout our days prove to be wise. Because many of us can act wisely situationally, but that doesn't mean our lives are marked by wisdom. There's a difference between the two. So it's a lifestyle marked by wisdom, but my humility, specifically in the meekness of wisdom. So it's by your good conduct, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. 
So meekness is the adjective to the object wisdom. So it's describing the wisdom with you, which you and I should have. It's one that is meek. But oftentimes, culturally and societally, we can misconstrue the word meek and what that means. Oftentimes, it can equate to weakness. For someone to be weak is you're a pushover. You're weak. You're always letting someone get something over on you. But that's not the idea of meekness in the biblical sense. Jesus actually pronounces or promises blessing to those who exhibit weakness. In Matthew 5, 5, it says, Blessed are the, weak, are the meek, almost said weak, uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you have blessing and you have promise for those that exhibit meekness throughout their life. But what is meekness? I think the best way uh, to describe this would be to illustrate it. A good way to illustrate it is that of a bridled stallion. If you have a wild stallion who's in, in its natural habitat, it's wild, it's just strong within its strength of its legs, it runs throughout its days wherever it wills to go. But a bridled stallion is one that is caught, one that is broken, one that is trained or tamed in such a way that it can come under the control of someone else. But that doesn't mean that the power that exists within that stallion is removed. It's just brought under control and conformity and submission to the one that trained it and the one that is riding it or leading it. It's to be a bridled stallion. We talked about this last week with our tongue, that we should have bridled tongues. Here James says we should be bridled men and women in meekness of wisdom and that we submit to the control of someone else. Vine's expository dictionary describing or defining this word in the Greek for meekness as proutes, but it consists not in a person's outward behavior only, nor yet in its relations to his fellow men, as little in his mere natural disposition. Rather, it is an inward grace of the soul. An inward grace of the soul, and it exercises... And the exercises of it are first and chiefly towards God. He says it is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. So it's not just meekness isn't the outward expression of humility. It's an inward disposition of our hearts. But like a wild stallion in its natural state, it is wild. You and I, in our natural state, we're wild, we're rebellious. We don't want to submit to anyone except what we desire. But when we come under the authority of someone else, again, when it comes to wisdom, origination matters. Where a thing originates makes the difference. That stallion on its own does not tame itself. Nor do you and I on our own. We're untamable in and of ourselves. We will always rebel. We will always seek our own ends. But whenever we inwardly change, and that is a work of the Lord, we come under his authority and his submission and we allow him to guide us. Just as that stallion is broken and is tamed and then is beholden itself to the one that rides it and goes where it directs, so with you and I. In the meekness of wisdom, we follow after the Lord's leading. Psalm 110.10 or 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. 
So it's not an external act that matters. It's an inward change. And that change is brought about by the Lord. But a fear of the Lord is what begins that wisdom. Now it's not that we're afraid of the Lord. That horse, a, a properly trained horse. Now I don't, I don't, I haven't had a lot of experience with horses. I'm gonna be honest, but I've done a lot of reading on horses. But many of you can probably relate and experience this. The purpose of breaking the horse isn't to make the horse fear you. It's to make the horse just come under your control and follow your lead. You don't want a scared horse, but you want a horse that's submitting to you. And that's the idea when it comes to fearing God. It's properly revering God for who He is. He's the creator of heaven and earth. We are the creation. So He brings about the change. But our biggest problem is that we contend to reject it. And I mean that for the church. as speaking to the church, not the unbeliever. Even within the church, even those that have, that have given their life to Christ, received His Spirit, we can still from time to time want to buck His leadership. Amen? Anybody? Our proclivity is to fall back into that sinful nature and to do what we want to do. We want to buck Him just as much as that trained stallion from time to time may come to a place where like, I, don't, I really don't like it today and literally Buck you. We do the same thing when it comes to the Lord. So it's not necessarily a return to the old lifestyle, though it can be, but it's the little moments throughout our days that we can act on what is right according to us. We can not accept, accept his dealings with us as good. And that is the distinction. That's what happens in our rebellious nature is that we come to a point in a particular day, in a particular circumstance, or in a particular moment where we decide we don't want to do what God is leading us to do. And in so doing, we're simply saying, God, your way right now is not good to me. My way is good to me. I want to do what I want to do. That becomes the good for me today, not you. And James will unpack what kind of wisdom that is and what that can lead to in our lives. But a good example of this is in your Bible, the book of Judges. Not a verse or a chapter in Judges, the entire book of Judges. If you want a good picture of the cycle of our lives, even within Christ and just the sinful nature we live, not to excuse sin and the patterns that we do fall into, but in the book of Judges, you have God's people who have Abraham, they have Moses, they have the law, but they live their life through this cycle where they do what is wise in their own eyes. They forget about the Lord and do what they want to do and calamity happens. And then God sends a judge or a person to judge the nation and to set them back right before the Lord. And then you see a period of maybe a few decades where the people are blessed and following the Lord, but then all of a sudden a time comes where they forget and they get to the bottom of the cycle and they reject and rebel against God and then here calamity happens. He sends a judge, and this is the cycle throughout that book. There's 21 chapters. There's 350 years of history in the book of Judges of a nation that's representative of mankind before the Lord, bucking our Creator because we want to decide what is good for you and I. Uh, the last verse of Judges sums it up very well. Judges 21, verse 25, the last verse. 
says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you read that book of Judges and you come and you think, hey, it's going to end well, the very last verse says, no, they still do what's right in their own eyes. Proverbs 14, 12, and then again in 16, 25, it's repeated verbatim, but there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, you and I, the wisdom, it... What matters is where it originates. If it originates within you and I doing what's wise in our own eyes, it will ultimately lead to death. Whatever the thing is that you and I do in our own wisdom, in our own understanding, ultimately will lead to death. That doesn't mean that we don't make wise decisions situationally and something can seem to be good. But ultimately, if that is not measured against heaven and eternity, but measured here, the end result is going to be death one way or another. But the wisdom that comes from above, we will see, as James unpacks this, the difference that that will make in our lives and the lives of those around us. Proverbs 3, 7, and 8 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. He says, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And he says, It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. See, there's a physical connection to our spiritual lives. But when we're doing things that we think are right, contrary to God's word as good, there's a physical brokenness that comes with it. When life is tough and things are we're not following the Lord and circumstances are dire, those are times also where we're tired, we're anxious, we can be stressed out, we can have headaches, physically ill, But he says, when you follow the Lord, fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It's healing to your flesh and refreshment to our bones. So origination matters. So now on to James' contrast of these two wisdoms. True wisdom and false wisdom. Wisdom that is earthly and wisdom that is heavenly. Wisdom that is from below. Wisdom that is above. He begins in verse 14 with the worldly or false wisdom. Verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, he says, do not boast and be false to the truth. So two things here that are coupled together. There's jealousy. In the Greek, it's zelos, and it means zeal. Having zeal for a thing. It's great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a thing, in pursuit of of something or an an objective. So that's not always a bad thing. If we're having zeal for our career or for our job and we want to perform excellent, there's nothing wrong with that. And in in the right way, that's a godly characteristic to have zeal for a thing. But when our zeal becomes the thing, when we idolize something in such a way and we pursue something in such a way that it is it and without accomplishing that, I'm less than or I'm broken in some way, we've got this out of sorts. But James makes clear what type of zeal becomes a problem. He says when it's bitter jealousy. Bitter is picross. It's harsh or virulent. It's extremely severe or harmful in its effects. So he's describing this type of zeal as a bad zeal, as a wrong zeal, as a worldly zeal, in that it is harmful. It cuts people. I want to move forward in this particular thing, but this job, career, school, 
sport, whatever it may be, that it doesn't matter who's in my way, I will destroy that person in order to get the thing that I desire to have. Does it matter who's hurt in the process? That is a bitter jealousy, but it's coupled with now a selfish ambition. Now, in the Greek, this can be translated as strife or contentious, but the idea is rather partisanship. It's the word is found before in the New Testament, before New Testament times in one place, and Aristotle uses it in the Greek, but the way that he uses it is a self-seeking pursuit, specifically of political office. But it's a pursuit of political office by unfair means. So Aristotle would describe a politician seeking to get elected or seeking position by unfairly cooking the books or cooking votes or something like that. I mean, we hear a lot of this now in our day and age. We're heading into a campaign year. There will be a whole lot of selfish ambition that we will see played out on our screens, on our tablets, wherever it may be, between people vying for someone else's vote. We will see bitter jealousy and selfish ambition amongst men in order to earn someone's vote, such as the idea. And they will think up ways, creative ways, to do these things, to ruin the name of someone else in order to elevate themselves. It's a worldly wisdom that will eventually lead to death and destruction. Calamity. But if you recall from chapter 3, verse 1, James says, not many of you should become teachers. The implication was there are people in the body that desire to become teachers. But he's saying, be careful if that's your desire. Because if you start propping yourself up in order to become that thing, what are you going to do in order to get there? And he's writing this to the church. So the idea is what exists within the church, and many of us can relate, is someone desires to teach or desires a position. They believe they can do it better than the person doing it. It doesn't have to be the teacher from the pulpit. It, doesn't, it could be someone within a classroom or some other ministry. But I believe I can do it better than that person. So then I start talking to other people and getting people on my side of this. And then you see strife. You see contention. You see, I want your vote so I can get in that position. If I get in that position, that means that person has to be removed. And you see the disunity and the, that, and the division that can happen within a church body when someone desires a position that they don't have and when bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exists there, a dividing line is created. And it happens within the church. It happens in boardrooms. It happens everywhere. It happens in classrooms. But when this exists in your heart, he says, do not boast and be false to the truth. He says, if they do exist in your heart, he says, don't go around boasting or bragging about how wise you are. He said, it's not fitting. Those two things do not line up. That is not wisdom. He says, you are false to the truth and that these things are the direct opposite of humility and meekness. If you say you're wise and understanding, he says, prove it by your good conduct. Show me your works in the meekness or humility of wisdom, not in boastful arrogance and propping yourself up and selling your word and who you are as this great thing to be voted on. He says, you're being false to the truth. Those things cannot exist together. So if we would proclaim, hey, I'm, I'm the wisest person in the room. Well, you're not the wisest person in the room. Simply by that statement alone, you've missed it. 
Verse 15, he says, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He says, But it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So it's earthly in that it is of the earth, contrasting from above. With minds set on the earth, we form an earthly standard of truth. We form an earthly standard of morality. We form an earthly standard of what makes us happy. But what makes me happy is contrary to what may make you happy. But if that becomes the standard of truth, who wins out? At some point, somebody has to not get their happiness because not all of us think the same way. What makes me happy, if it's not the same thing that makes you happy, if they're opposite to one another, somebody's going to walk away unhappy. But how do we get there? It's the idea. But it is earthly. It's a subjective view of self. Again, origination matters. If it's coming from this earth, it is not the standard of morality that should exist. God's standard of truth exists solely in His Word. But we want to buck His Word for what we determine to be good today. And that falls with how we feel, which is unspiritual. The word is psychikos. It means natural or sensual. It's where we get the word psyche or soul. But it's an inward view of ourselves. We're, we're beholden to our inward human emotions. But are, are our emotions always valid? Absolutely not. The reason that we have the words, I'm sorry, those words exist because our human emotions are flawed. We don't always have it right. So when the source of wisdom becomes our own thoughts and feelings, what do you get? You get things and lifestyles and, and beliefs and ideologies contrary to God's word. Where does, where does homosexuality come from? It comes from a subjective view of self and how I feel today. Where does transgenderism come from? It comes from a worldly wisdom saying, or an unspiritual or a natural earthly wisdom saying, this is how I feel today, therefore this is the thing that exists for me. And I can be however I feel today and you to accept that in me because that's my standard of truth. Is that not what we see happening all around us? It's because people are acting on a worldly wisdom or a worldly thought process based on their standard of truth, forgetting and bucking God's truth on what it says about you and I. Our hearts are deceitful above all else. They're desperately sick. Who can understand it? But we would say, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. And my heart says that I'm something that I'm not. And you were to accept that. Otherwise, you are the one that is a bigoted. You're hateful. You're the one that is immoral. You see the reversal of God's truth. This is earthly. This is unspiritual. And it is also demonic. The word literally is devilish. So it either comes from Satan or Satan has co-signed on it. And I've said this before, and this is, this is an important distinction for me in my heart, is that yes, Satan is the father of lies. He's the one sowing discord. He's the great accuser. He's the deceiver. He's the one that can convince someone to go against God's truth. But you and I in our sinful nature are perfectly within our own bounds to act in sinful, in, upon that sinful nature. But when we do that, Satan will co-sign on it. So when it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, 
It's either coming directly from him or he co-signs on it. But you and I are perfectly capable, according to Romans 1, of inventing evil. Paul says that we can be or are inventors of evil and then we give approval to those who do so. And when we fall to that place and we think we're wise in doing it, this sounds so great, let's do it this way. And it's not always that horrible thing that's very clearly wrong, which there are certainly some things that are very clearly wrong. But a vast majority of the population believe that thing to be right. And the enemy doesn't have to do anything. It just set back and let us go. And then verse 16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, he says, There will be disorder in every vile practice. I don't know if you, where you're at on social media, when you turn on your TV, things you watch, things you see, where you shop. But again, it is the month of June. The month of June is also known as Pride Month. And you see people acting upon what they believe to be right according to themselves and their standard of truth and morality. And James says the result of those things is disorder in every vile or evil practice. And they're not done in secret, they're done in the open. But the word for disorder is confusion. Instability. I mean, I don't want to just sit on this particular thing, but we all have children and teenagers that, that, that hear and see and talk about these things. Gender dysphoria is confusion. It's disorder. Because someone sold a lie. And others begin to buy it. And it's vile. It's evil, worthless, and wicked. That doesn't mean that we run from that thing. New Testament teaching does tell us that we flee youthful passions. But we also need to learn to love those that are struggling with such confusion and such disorder. You and I, by our good conduct, show our works in the meekness of wisdom. Our manner of life is a testimony to God's truth. But if we're running away from darkness, how does light shine in it? I think that is many ways what's led us to the place that we are. As we run away from it, we let our light shine somewhere else instead of in the darkness where it needs to be. Now we do that with wisdom that comes from above. Which brings us to verse 17. James goes on to describe the heavenly true wisdom. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, it is then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. So it begins here with pure. It's free from defilement. It's chaste. It's holy. It's blameless. It's purity of internal motives which lead to an external action. And this forms the foundation for everything else that follows. This is the sign of the wisdom. It's good conduct. It's a pure heart, which leads to pure motives and pure actions. And those actions, as we relate to others, begins with being peaceable. 
It promotes, we promote peace. It brings peace to unpeaceable situations. Now, it comes with wisdom what unpeaceable situation we may inject ourselves into in order to seek peace. We need to be mindful of that. It's foolish to run off into the middle of, say, a... Uh, I just, just lost the word. Um, picket signs. Protest. Thank you. Thank you. But that would be foolish to run off in the middle of a protest and start trying to, to make peace with those that vehemently do not want to make peace. So we act wisely in that, but it should come from a pure heart. But we should be peaceable within God's church specifically, to come out of the outside world that is clearly fallen, that we shouldn't be surprised by because of the fallen nature of it. But let's put ourselves now in the context of the church. We should seek peace with one another, not continual discord. We may disagree on things, but in those disagreements, we should seek one another out and seek to be peaceable. And then gentle. That means to be fair and reasonable with one another. Different word than meek which meek can be translated as gentle, but in this case, it's being fair with one another. And then open to reason. That literally means being compliant, but not gullible. It's not that we're just a pushover and we just give ourselves over to what anyone says, but we're open to reason and that we're willing to concede on non-essential things. If it's a non-essential, instead of continuing to be argumentative and, and re... And, resist the urge to be made right. He said, we're open to reason and we concede that thing. Part of my struggle can be I have a desire to be made right and that can cause discord in my relationships. I've learned where that's rooted. It's rooted in insecurity and a lack of confidence as, as a young man and growing up and I have a desire to be made right because I found myself to be wrong all the time. But wrong according to others, mind you. See how I just made myself right? But being open to reason. And then being full of mercy. That's offering compassion and kindness. But he says full of mercy and good works. These two things are linked together. Is that the good, or good fruits, I'm sorry. But the good fruits, they become the manifestation of that compassion and kindness towards others. Again, I think of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have the, the priest and the Levite. You have the teacher of the law. You have the administrator of the law. They see the man in need. They cross by on the other side of the street and they do nothing about it. But you have the Good Samaritan that comes along and he has mercy specifically. The text says he had compassion and he showed mercy to this man. So he's full of mercy and that manifestation of that mercy is how he acted upon that. In that he bound the wounds of that man. He took him to the end. He paid for his rest and his healing. This is wisdom that comes from above as we relate to other people. And then the last two, it's the essential nature of true wisdom itself is that it is impartial. Remember from chapter 2, James wrote, show no partiality. True wisdom is impartial. It's true to itself in any and all application of it. Every situation that we may find ourselves into to where we need to act wisely, which testify every single day, we need to act upon wisdom. It is impartial in the way it applies itself to whatever situation may come up. 
but it will never compromise on its purity. Now, this doesn't, comp- this doesn't contradict being open to reason or conceding, but when it comes to our purity, that inward disposition that translates to external action, says that it's impartial and that it will never fold over on God's truth and what is right according to God's word and God's standard. We won't go into any situation that we know to be contrary to God's word and compromise on that thing. It will be impartial in its application. And then it's sincere. The word is onopokritos. This word is related to hypocrites. We've looked at this word before. This word is where we get the word uh, hypocrite or hypocrisy. But in the Greek, it's used as a stage actor. A stage actor that is role-playing in some way. But the nature of role-playing is that roles change. So that stage actor can, in one scene, act one way, walk off stage, come back with a different mask on, and act another way. You know, often you see as when it comes to theater, you know, you have the mask that is smiling, then you have the mask that is frowning. In old plays, characters would walk off stage. They would, depending on the situation, put on a mask that is smiling and come act according to that. Walk off stage, put on the mask that is frowning and act according to that. And that is hypocrisy. But that describes the insincere. That does not describe the true heavenly wisdom that we should exhibit. We should be true to who we are, but impartial in every situation so that that purity that's within is made known outside. In verse 18, it says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Ultimately, this is relational harmony. Yes, we will always reap what we sow, but in this case, it is righteousness and peace. There's a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. If we're not making peace, there's no harvest of righteousness. It's just unity and brokenness. But if we recall the results real quick of worldly false wisdom, the results were disorder and evil practice. Every evil practice. But comparing this now to a lifestyle that is exactly the opposite of that produces exactly the opposite results, and that is peace, which is order, and is righteousness, which is every good thing. And again, back to chapter 1. From the Father of lights, He gives good gifts to you and I. Douglas Moo says the wisdom that does not produce a good lifestyle is in some characterized by the world, the flesh, and the devil. In each of these ways, it is the direct antithesis of wisdom that comes from above, which is heavenly in nature, spiritual in essence, and divine in origin. James's point is clear is that if we claim to be wise, why don't our lives reflect such wisdom? And again, this is the thread that runs through the entirety of this letter. If we claim one thing, church, why does our life reflect something different? Now, understand that we do live in a sinful world. We still live in sinful flesh. 
We're still going to fail and not to excuse our sin, but we should understand if we're walking around and claiming a thing, James says, show the thing that you're claiming. May our lives reflect that as we act in wisdom from above, not in our own. So real quick, just to break this back down. The signs, the things that we see for the wisdom of this world, the unwise, it's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, but for the wise, it's good behavior and gentle good deeds. The characteristics of that are arrogance, dishonesty, worldly, and demonic characteristics for the unwise, but the wise, it is pure, it is peaceable, gentle, reasonable, merciful, bountiful, unwavering, and sincere. And the results of which one is disorder and every evil, and one is righteousness and peace. And my desire is to live in a manner that is righteous and peaceable. I would think for, for all of us in this room would desire to live righteously and peaceably. Not always contending and always fighting. Not always living in discord with other people, but to be at peace with other people. But this is a broken world and it's difficult to do that, yes. But it can exist for you and I, not because we're so awesome, but because God's so good. And he gives us the wisdom that we need to move through this world in a way that makes a difference. And as always, it begins here. And it will be our families, it will be our communities. And so on and so on as we act in wisdom. Now I'm going to ask the, the band to come up and I'm going to pray for us. And then, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And, uh, and I pray that we would be blessed by it uh, in our time this morning. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for this morning. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, for wisdom that is above, Lord. And please forgive me in my heart when I act on wisdom that is earthly. When I do what is right in my own eyes. Lord, your word gives so much warning to those that would be right in their own eyes. And the foolishness of it, Lord, that ultimately it does end in death, Lord. But I pray, Lord, you help us to see those moments. Lord, that you would teach us that in those moments of, of weakness of mind, those moments where in our flesh we want to buck you in your truth and do what is right in our own eyes, Lord, that you would help us to take captive those thoughts. Help us to see the error of that, Lord. And then put our hearts and our minds in submission to you, Lord, and allow you to grant us the wisdom that comes from you, Lord, to be the difference maker for your glory and our good in all of our situations. Whatever they may be, that our manner of life may be marked by one of wisdom, Lord, before you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The church, what we're going to do is um, we're going to sing a song together. The band's going to play. And uh, what I would ask is during that song at some point that you would, you would come up and, and grab the elements and just return back to your seat. But don't take them yet. We'll take them all together uh, after the song. But take this time as we sing together, just right there in your seat, just you with the Lord. Just position your heart and your mind before Him. Whatever state that your fellowship with the Lord may be in, I would ask that before taking of the Lord's Supper that you would make your heart right with Him in whatever way you need to, right where you're at. 
The word says that when we take this supper incorrectly, we drink judgment against ourselves. And I pray that that's not so this morning, that we would take an account of where we're at. Repent where repentance needs to be. Confess where confession needs to be. Just in your heart before the Lord. And we'll sing. And then we'll take the supper together.